You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so our uh, task this morning in John 15, 12 through 17 is to navigate what it is that uh, Jesus means when he calls us his friends, when he calls disciples his friends, and to navigate kind of what it means when he calls us, uh, even commands us to love one another the way that he has loved us, to love one another the way that he has loved us. And uh, given that that is our task this morning, to explore that call to love one another as Jesus has loved us, I want to hold out for you guys this morning that the kind of a primary concern for me this week as I was uh, writing this sermon was that he's saying this to people who he walked with for three years, day by day, night by night, hour by hour, minute by minute. Uh, Jesus walked with these guys that he says to them, love one another. I give you this commandment, love one another the way that I've loved you. He didn't feel a great need in this passage we're going to see to kind of exposit for them all of the myriad ways that he had loved them. He just said, love them the way I've loved you. Just all this, all this that we've been doing for the last three years like that. And while different elements of his love may have been highlighted in some of their minds as they kind of thought about the different ways that Jesus had loved them, because he had, he'd loved them personally and individually, but he also loved them as a group of disciples, uh, none of them were like, so what do you mean when you say you love us? Right, like they'd encountered his love again and again and again in so many different ways over the course of many years. And so my kind of first order of business as I was writing this in, in this morning as I talked to you is to say that when you have encountered the love of Jesus, you don't have to think very long in order to make sense of what he means when he says that he loves you, if that makes sense. And so my exercise this week in trying to prepare was to talk to a bunch of people that I love and ask them a simple question. I said to them, on Sunday, I've got to preach to the church uh, the command of Jesus to love one another the way that he's loved us. And so it seems to me that it'd be great for me to hear from some people, hey, what's maybe your favorite way that Jesus has loved you? And so I asked. And last night I was having dinner with my father-in-law, and I asked him this question, and he gave me half of an answer and then stored up the rest of the answer in his heart only to pull me aside uh, later that night uh, to talk to me privately. And he said to me, you know, Adam, I've been thinking about your question, and I've heard that in certain professions in certain circumstances, that there are people who can identify the smell of death, that you come to know it, and when you're in the presence of death, that there's something intuitive in you that knows that you're in the presence of death. And I have experienced that something similar, a similar phenomenon, is true about hopelessness. That I was three years old when my mother drove me to the orphanage for the first time. And when I walked in there, I smelled hopelessness. And when I think about what I love most about the way that Christ has loved me, it's that every day that I've belonged to Jesus, I've never been without hope. Because I have an advocate. I asked the question of my um, youngest son, and he instinctively said, Dad, he literally died for me. 
he's seven. My middle kid, Bo, he said, he knows the story about the crisis surrounding um, Sarah's pregnancy with him and the miracle that surrounded his birth. And he said, Jesus not only saved me literally, but then he saved my soul. My mother-in-law said she loves the way that he has protected her from herself. My wife said, I love the way that he sees me, that he knows me, that he's been intimately involved in the details of my life, that he cares. And I could keep going, of course. What I'm showing you this morning is that when you ask somebody who's been loved about the love that they've received, they don't have to think very long in order to start talking about the ways that they have received love. And this is especially true when you've been a recipient of the love of Christ. That the love of Christ, you can't miss it. That the love of Christ is characterized by so many wonderful stories that to say, that he says to you, love one another the way that I have loved you. It ought to be quite natural for you to start thinking about the ways that he's loved you. But there's not much for me to preach to you about this morning as far as the command goes for you to love one another as he has loved you. If you have not tasted and seen for yourself the love of Christ, if you have not received. Now, Jesus is going to highlight in this passage for them. I said he didn't bother to give all of these different details about the ways that he loved them. But he does bother with one specific way, the highest way, the greatest way that he is going to love his disciples. But it hadn't happened yet. And so it makes sense that he would teach them and talk to them about that because he hadn't yet laid down his life. But other than that, he leaves it to them to make sense in this moment by his help and with the help of the Holy Spirit in the future to, to understand what it means to receive his love and to be loved by him. But church, this is what I want you to hear up front this morning, is that you must first receive, know, the love of Christ before any of this applies to you. And that if you have received and known the love of Christ, then everything here applies to you and it will be so. You understand? So Jesus says this, chapter 15, verse 12, and this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. So we see Jesus introduce us to a couple of ideas. The first is that he wants us to love one another. His charge to his disciples in the room, and, and by proxy his charge to us, is that we love one another. This morning we are talking about love for the brothers and sisters in the faith. We could talk about any number of other commands to love, to love the outsider, to love the outcast, to love the lost, to love all kinds of people. But this passage this morning is specifically about Christians loving Christians about the church loving the church, about disciples loving disciples. We're talking about the kind of love that Jesus said without which the world will never know that we are his disciples. We're talking about the love that he, over which he said that the world will know that you are truly my disciples by this, that you love one another. We're talking about one another love, inward-focused love, the church loving the church. And I want to stay laser-focused on the church loving the church this morning because this is what Jesus was talking about. 
Now, you will find that it's naturally true that if you have come into contact with this love, if you have been uh, touched by the love of Jesus Christ, if your life has been redeemed by the far reaches of God's love for you, and you're in the company of somebody who shares that story, that your ability to love one another is unique among all the other loves of the earth. The love that you will have for one another, two people who have received this supernatural love from Christ Jesus, will be foreign to any love that the world can, can offer to itself apart from Christ. It's even different from the love that you can have between a believer and an unbeliever because it would be non-reciprocal in the highest sense. We are talking about the highest earthly love between humans, which is the love of a Christian for a Christian. The one that understands just how much they've been forgiven, how much they've been loved, how much they've been touched by the grace of God such that they can extend it to one another. And so Jesus gives this commandment that we love one another as he has loved us. This next verse, verse 13, I'm going to hold it out for you guys, and we're going to preach it as the central verse after I preach through some of the other uh, pieces in this passage. But he claims, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so all I want to pull from that verse at this portion of the sermon is that he calls, is that he starts to introduce us to this idea of friends. Because then he's going to talk about what it means to be his friend. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so here, connecting if you do what I command you to what he said in the first verse, verse 12, that this is my commandment. What is the command that you need to follow in order to, that determines that you are his friend. Well, this commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so I don't want to open up this text to mean all, a thousand different things. Jesus is being laser-focused and super clear in this passage. This is my commandment. Love one another. You're my friends if you do what I command you. He's talking about the commandment he just gave. But when we talk about the commandments of God, you know, this is a conversation I was having with Benton out front this morning. As it was striking me as I was approaching the pulpit this morning, it was almost an like agitation as I was thinking about the commands of my Lord, Jesus Christ, that when he commanded the wind and the waves, what did they do? They obeyed. And when he commanded a legion of demons, what did they do? They obeyed. And when he commanded the dead to rise, what did they do? When he commanded sickness to depart, what did it do? So how arrogant is us as his children to suppose that when he commands us, that he's hoping for the best? Like, the children of Christ, the friends of Christ, are not in some separate category from all things. We yield when he commands. All things yield when he commands. When Jesus Christ commands something, you can take it to the bank. It is so. And you want me to prove it, I'm going to let Jesus prove it. Because at the end of this passage, he's going to say in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Not so that you might. I'm commanding it in order that it will be so. If that's still not enough, let's go back a verse. Verse 16, you didn't choose me. 
But I chose you and I appointed you that, w- uh, that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. This connects, of course, tightly to what we preached last, last week about what it means to abide in Christ. It will be so. We have the confidence of assurance for those who are in Christ. If we are his friends, we will obey. And so trying to make sense of this, this idea that Jesus commands us, he says that we are his friends if we obey his commands, I think that we need to do just a quick exploration of this word if. You see, we are conditioned when it comes to if statements that, to connect reward to behavior. As if Jesus is saying to us, if you jump over the hurdle, then you get the doggy treat. And that that's what he means when he's talking about, if you keep my commandments, you are my friends. As if you keep the commandments and in so doing become his friend. That friendship with him is the reward for keeping the commandments. But this is a distinctly different kind of if. And you're very familiar with this other kind of if. You just don't ever think about it. And it's more like this. If you are wearing the collar that I put on you, you are my dog. You're unsure that you're my dog? Well, are you wearing the collar? Okay, there you go. You're my dog. This is the if manner in which, here's how I know. Look at the flow of his statement. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I, past tense, have loved you. He already loves you, okay? Greater love has no one than this than someone laid down his life for his friends. He calls them friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to me. I chose you and I appointed you. I mean, he couldn't make it any more clear that he's giving a command to his friends. Not giving a command that we might become his friends. These are categorically different. And so then he makes this claim, verse, um, verse 14. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. This is the Greek word doulos, normally translated as slaves. It's complicated. Both work. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So he talks, starts talking about the nature of how we are not, no longer servants or slaves, but that we become friends. And he kind of builds it all around this idea that, it's, that he has uh, revealed the words of the father to us. He shows us like these layers of relationship, that there's the father and he's communicating to the son, and then there's the son, and he's got friends, and he's communicating to the friends what the father is communicating to him. He says, all of the things that I've received from the father, I've communicated to you, and that it's in this way that I no longer call you a servant or a slave, because the servant or the slave does not know what his master is doing. And so there are some um, pieces of this word picture that stay the same, after the transition from servant to friend, where it's, there's still a master and he's still doing the things, but it's a matter of your relationship to the master that you would actually know what he's doing. And Jesus is saying that what makes you a friend and not a servant is that the master is doing things, 
but he's brought you into the knowledge of what the master is doing. All that he's heard from his father, he's made known to you. And so I kind of get this picture. I I hope I'm not making it too simple, but I kind of get this picture where uh, there's a master and he's preparing a feast and he's got a great reason for celebration. And we can, you know, apply different doctrines to that. There's maybe maybe we can imagine the feast of heaven. And so he's making all the plans for this feast. And so he tells his, de- his delighted son all about it. It's for the son and his friends. He tells him everything about it. And so he's very excited. There's this building excitement about what the father's doing, planning this great feast. But to the servant, to the slave, all they hear is, go and slaughter the choice calf. Go, start up a fire. Go, gather the select wine not invited into the details of why they're doing anything that they're doing or what's happening, just serving the master's commands. And yet, so many of us, when we interact with God, we interact with him as if we're slaves or servants. I, I try to do what I, what I think I'm supposed to do, but I really have no idea why I'm doing it. And, and, and even I'll start ascribing to my activity reasons for the activity that are patently false, even heretical. Like, misapplying that verse 14. If you are my friends, or you are my friends, if you do what I command you, if I make that mean, I obey the commands of God and become his friend on account of it, I'm not a Christian. I'm a slave. But to say, as a friend of God, I obey his commandments, Well, that's Christianity. And so Jesus is declaring for us, I don't call you servants. Servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. Which means that all of our obedience, including to this commandment, serve not to qualify us as friends of Jesus, but to certify for us that we are friends of Jesus. And so when we sin, church, when we don't obey the commands of Jesus, what we are forsaking is the assurance that we are able to encounter through obedience. That when you obey the commands of Jesus Christ, it's like testifying to yourself over and over again about your sonship. But apart from obeying these commands of Christ, we lack that assurance, that those reminders through, through um, certification that you are who Jesus says you are. But rest assured, he, if he commands it, it'll be so. He's appointed you to go and bear fruit. So if you belong to him, you will bear fruit. But Jesus makes this claim, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And if you're like me, it, can, uh, it may feel like this is in direct contrast to um, Romans chapter 5. In verse uh, 6 to 8, I'll read it to you. Um, uh, Paul wrote, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8 paints this picture almost that the love of God is magnified by the, um, uh, like, like somehow his, his love is more magnified the more that we come to understand the unworthiness of the object of his love. That greater love has no one than this, than that he would love his enemy. Not that he would love his friend. I mean, we just, we're exposed in this, in this passage to an idea that humans rarely, but sometimes, he says scarcely, will die for a righteous person. And perhaps, maybe more likely, somebody would even die for a good person, but that God's love, what makes his love divine, what makes it higher, the greater love, is that he would die for us while we were yet sinners, die for the ungodly, die for the unrighteous. But here Jesus is saying something different. He's saying in chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And maybe I'm just inviting you into confusion, and you never would have thought of that, and I'm so sorry. But I had to resolve it. I'm like, what, what is it? And, and this is where I've arrived, is that Jesus in chapter 15 is not nullifying what we read in Romans chapter 5. He's emphasizing something different. So whereas in, in Romans 5, what we hear is that the quality of God's love is magnified on account of the a lack of worthiness by the objects of his love. What Jesus is talking about is the quality of God's love is magnified by the price of it. By the, he's emphasizing the laying down of one's life. Not the recipient, but the action itself. And you put them together, and you've got a God who lays down his life to make his enemy his friends. And together, this is too wonderful to speak. But if Jesus Christ starts talking about laying down his life for his friends, we, of course, want to be found among the friends. Because if it's for his friends that he's laid down his life, how is it that we come to be his friends? And church, if I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. It is by grace alone. We do not earn the favor of Christ. We do not earn the salvation of the Lord. We do not take the position of the deserving poor. And I emphasize deserving poor because in some ways I find that this is creeping up to compete with the self-righteous as the main area of, of uh, departure from Orthodox Christianity. I think we all know what I mean when I say self-righteous. I do good and then God rewards me. It's garbage. It's rubbish. It is it binds you for hell. But there's a second ideology that is growing in popularity that says that I am the deserving poor. That he takes pity on my moral poverty, not because of what Christ has done, but because he feels bad for me. That he looks at the things that happened to me and that that's sufficient for him to turn a blind eye to my sin. That I find excuse before the Father in the absence of perfect holiness, not because of what Christ has done, but because he understands. This, too, is a damnable lie. 
Your right standing before God the Father is on the merits of Christ alone, not on the merits of what you have done, not on the merits of the excuses that we have for what we haven't done. We all stand without excuse for falling short of the glory of God, and that is why it is such great news that he came for us. And so he makes this claim that his love is magnified, that there is no greater love on account of the price of it, his very life laid down for us, and the unworthiness of the objects of it, clarified by Romans 5. And he says that we're no longer slaves on account of his words being made known to us, and we are kind of still fumbling into the doctrine of adoption here. You see, what we see in this contrast between friends and slaves, and the, the slave doesn't know what the father is doing, what the master is doing, but the friend does. It's like, who gets to, like, like think about like being over at your friend's house, and their dad has said, hey, uh, later, like gives the itinerary, later we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and then we're going to do this, and then the friend, the kid runs to you, and he's like, hey, my dad said we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then he, the father does it, and the son is included, and the son's friends are, are allowed to be a part of it also, not on the basis of what the friends have done, but on the basis of the father loving the son and inviting the son to bring the friends along with him. It's an imperfect picture, but I hope it helps. It's because we've been adopted, and of course, this is taken from Romans chapter 8. Chapter 12, or chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so here we are introduced to the idea of becoming a debtor to grace, a debtor to grace on account of our adoption. And so I heard a story told Tim Keller tells the story. Um, he's told it many times. I, I don't remember the details exactly, but it kind of goes like this. He was sharing the gospel with somebody, and he was teaching them that we are adopted into the family of God by grace alone. And he saw the, the, the veil lifted, the scales fall away from this person's eyes as she responded to him and said, if it's by grace alone, then I owe him everything. If it's by grace alone, then I have to obey whatever he says. Like her first and natural conclusion was, if I earn it, then he owes it. And he's gonna, I kind of have him on a leash just like he has me on a leash. We work together on this. But if I didn't earn it, and he did it by grace alone, then that means I owe him everything. And in this way, while we are freed from our bondage and our slavery to sin, we become slaves to God. Somehow to be a friend of God is to be a servant of God. 
because what he has done by grace has made him Lord. So as we come under the Lordship of Christ, we continue with this idea from Romans chapter uh, 6, I'll start in 14. It says, uh, For sin has no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, listen close, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For, once, for as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now your members are presented as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. Just a little bit more. Listen close. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And so Jesus talks about friendship with him being a transfer of slavery to sin to slavery to God. That we serve the flesh and serve sin to serving our Father. We're not talking about being saved into autonomy. We're not talking about being saved into your best self. We're talking about being saved into the ranks of the Almighty. That His voice now drives our activity. And which activity is He chiefly concerned with? Circling all the way back around now. That we love one another the way that He has loved us. See, church, this is a command of Christ. It must be so. It will be so if you belong to him. You must bear the fruit of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the great assurance of your salvation, the assurance of your position, the assurance that you are a son, is do you love the other sons? Do you love the other daughters? Do you have a shared father? And under the umbrella of his love, does it drive you to love one another that the world may know that you are truly his disciples? And just as Jesus didn't feel the need to pause and give them the 37 ways that he loved them, that they must love one another, I don't want to do that for you. But when I ask you, what's your favorite way that Jesus has loved you? You should be able to answer that. And I'd start there when it comes to loving other people. Does this make sense? And you'll find that as you submit to the Lordship of Christ, that his commands reach into every corner of your life, that your whole life becomes one lived unto worship of the King, which means lived unto the love of his children. You must love the church. 
receive the love of Christ, then love one another in that way. And as you love one another in that way, let it certify that you are in the love of Christ. It is circular and beautiful. In some future sermon, some future passage, we will talk about how that then overflows to love of the world and love of the lost. But you will never love your neighbor if you do not love your brother. And you will never love your brother if you do not know the love of God. And so Jesus is very clear here. And church, while it is brief, it's brief on purpose. I don't want to add, and I don't want to take away. So hear this invitation, and then we're going to pray. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Fully understood and fully applied, fully taking root in your life, this command requires you to lay down your life. It requires you to die for your friends. These guys would literally go do it. All but one, to our knowledge, would go on to die for the sake of the church. At a minimum, it would mean dying to self, dying to preference, dying to convenience, dying to comfort. You must love one another. And it is by this that the world will know that you are his disciples. Let's pray for it.